Chapter Twelve, Section Three, of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Twelve, Section Three, The Fruits of Industrial Organization. The only sound point of departure for a national economic policy is, as we have seen, the acceptance by the state of certain of the results of corporate industrial organization. Such state recognition is equivalent to discrimination in their favor, because it leaves them in possession of those fundamental economic advantages, dependent on terminals, large capital, and natural resources, which place them beyond effective competition and the state has good reason to suffer this discrimination because a wise government can always make more social capital out of a cooperative industrial organization than it can out of an extremely competitive one it is extremely improbable that even when officially recognized in this way the process of corporate combination would go beyond a certain point it might result in a condition similar to that which now prevails in the steel industry or that of sugar refining but it should be added that in industries organized to that extent there is not very much competition in prices prices are usually regulated by agreement among the leading producers and competition among the several producers turns upon quickness of delivery and the quality of the service or product whether or not this restriction of competition works badly depends usually upon the enlightened shrewdness with which the schedule of rates and prices is fixed a corporation management which was thoroughly alive to its own interest would endeavor to arrange a scale of prices which while affording a sufficient profit would encourage the increased use of the product and that is precisely the policy which has been adopted by the best managed american railroad and industrial corporations but it must always be kept in mind that in the absence of a certain amount of competition such a policy cannot be taken wholly for granted a short-sighted management may prefer to reap large profits for a short time and at the expense of the increased use of its product or service moreover the margin between the cost of production and the particular price at which the product or service can be sold consistent with its largely increasing use may enable the producer to gather enormous profits and such profits may not stimulate competition to any effective extent precisely because they depend upon advantages in production which cannot be duplicated no state desirous of promoting the economic welfare of its citizens can remain indifferent to the chance thus afforded of earnings disproportionately large to the economic service actually rendered in dealing with this question of possibly excessive profits under such a method of economic organization the state has many resources at its disposal besides the most obvious one of incessant official interference with the essentials of corporation management of these the most useful consists unquestionably in its power of taxation it can constitute a system of taxation in respect to the semi-monopolistic corporations which would deprive them of the fruits of an excessively large margin between the cost of production and the price at which the product or service could be increasingly sold net profits could be taxed at a rate which was graduated to the percentage paid and beyond a certain point the tax should amount to much the larger fraction of the profits in this way a semi-monopolistic corporation would not have any interest in seeking profits beyond a certain percentage a condition would be established which while it would not deprive the managers of a corporation of full responsibility for the conduct of its business 
would give them an additional inducement always to work for the permanent improvement of the economic relation of the corporation to the community they would have no interest in preferring large but insecure net earnings to smaller ones found on a thoroughly satisfactory service a low schedule of prices and the constantly increasing efficiency of the plant and organization of the company the objection will no doubt be immediately urged that a system of this kind would prevent any improvement of service from going beyond a certain point just because it would cease to be profitable beyond a certain point but such an objection would not be valid provided the scale of taxation were properly graduated i shall not attempt to define any precise scale which would serve the purpose because the possible adoption of such a plan is still too remote but the state should in return for the protection it extends to these semi-monopolistic corporations take a certain percentage of all profits and while this percentage would increase until it might at a certain level reach as much as one-half or three-quarters it should not become larger than three-quarters except in the case of a corporation earning say more than twenty per cent on its capital to be sure the establishment even of such a level would conceivably destroy the interested motive for increased efficiency at a certain point but such a point could hardly be reached except in the case of companies whose monopoly was almost complete the foregoing plan however is not suggested as a final and entirely satisfactory method of incorporating semi-monopolistic business organizations into an economic system of a nationalizing democracy i do not believe that any formula can be framed which will by the magic of some chemical process convert a purely selfish economic motive into an unqualified public economic benefit but some such plan as that proposed above may enable an industrial democracy to get over the period of transition between the partial and the complete adaptation of these companies to their place in a system of national economy they can never be completely incorporated so long as the interest of their owners is different from that of the community as a whole but in the meantime they can be encouraged to grow and perhaps to become more efficient while at the same time they can be prevented from becoming a source of undesirable or dangerous individual economic inequalities and i do not believe that such a transitional system of automatically regulated recognition would be open to the same objections as would a system of incessant official interference in so far indeed as the constructive industrial leader is actuated merely by the motive of amassing more millions than can be of any possible use to himself or his children in so far as such is the case the inducement to american industrial organization on a national scale would be impaired but if an economic democracy can purchase efficient industrial organization on a huge scale only at the price of this class of fortunes then it must be content with a lower order of efficiency and american economic statesmanship has every reason to reject such an alternative until there is no help for it the best type of american millionaire seems always to have had as much interest in the work and in the game as in his prodigious rewards and much of his work has always been done for him by employees who while they were paid liberally did not need the inducement of more money than they could wholesomely spend in return for service of the highest efficiency in any event the plan of an automatically regulated recognition of semi-monopolistic corporations would be intended only as a transitional measure its object would be to give these somewhat novel industrial agents a more prolonged and thorough test than any they have yet received 
if they survived for some generations and increased in efficiency and strength, it could only be because the advantages they enjoyed in the way of natural resources, abundant capital, organization, terminals, and responsible management, were decisive and permanent. And in that case the responsibility of the state could not be limited to their automatic regulation and partial assimilation. A policy must be adopted of converting them into express economic agents of the whole community, and of gradually appropriating for the benefit of the community the substantial economic advantages which these corporations had succeeded in acquiring. Just in so far, that is, as a monopoly or a semi-monopoly succeeded in surviving and growing, it would partake of the character of a natural monopoly, and would be in a position to profit beyond its deserts from the growth of the community. In that event a community which had any idea of making economic responsibility, commensurate with power would be obliged to adopt a policy of gradual appropriation. The public service corporations in the large cities have already reached the stage of being recognized natural monopolies. In the case of these corporations public opinion is pretty well agreed that a monopoly controlling the whole service is more likely to be an efficient servant of the city than a number of separate corporations, among whom competition in order to be effective must be destructive and wasteful. American municipal policy is consequently being adapted to the idea of monopolized control of these public services. The best manner of dealing with these monopolies, after they have been created and recognized, is not settled by any means to the same extent. But the principle of restricting the franchises under which they operate to a limited term of years is well established, and the tendency is towards a constant reduction of the length of such leases, and towards the retention of a right of purchase, exercisable at all or at certain stated times. The American city has come to realize that such privileges possess a value, which increases automatically with the growth of the city, and with the guarantee against competition. And this source of value should never be alienated except for a short period, and on the most stringent terms. Wherever, consequently, a city has retained any control over such franchises, it is converting the public service corporations merely into temporary tenants of what are essentially exclusive economic privileges. During the period of its tenancy the management of a corporation has full opportunity to display any ability and energy whereof it may be possessed, and such peculiarly efficient management should be capable of earning sufficient, if not excessive, rewards. In the meantime, any increase in value which would result, inevitably from the possession of a monopoly in a growing community would accrue, as it should, to the community itself. The only alternative to such a general scheme of municipal policy, in relation to public service corporations, would be one of municipal operation as well as municipal ownership, and municipal operation unquestionably has certain theoretical advantages. When a corporation enjoys a tendency for a stated term only, there is always a danger that it will seek temporarily larger profits, by economizing on the quality of its service. It has not the same interest in building up a permanently profitable business, that it would in case it were owner as well as operator. This divergence of interest may lead to a good deal of friction, but for the present at least, the mixed system of public ownership and private operation offers the better chance of satisfactory results. As long as the municipal civil service remains in its existing disorganized and inefficient condition, 
the public administration should not be granted any direct responsibility which can be withheld without endangering an essential public interest a system of public operation would be preferable to one of divided personal responsibility between public and private officials but when a mixed system can be created which sharply distinguishes the two responsibilities one from another without in any way confusing them it combines for the time being a maximum of merit with a minimum of friction such a system carries with it however two results not always appreciated a municipality which embarks upon a policy of guaranteeing monopolies and leasing the enjoyment thereof should make all permanent improvements to the system at its own expense and its financial organization and methods must be adapted to the necessity of raising a liberal supply of funds for such essential purposes its borrowing capacity must not be arbitrarily restricted as in the case of so many american cities at the present time and of course any particular lease must be arranged so as to provide not only the interest on the money raised for all work of construction but for the extinction of the debt thereby incurred furthermore a city adopting such a policy should push it to the limit wherever as is so often the case private companies now enjoy a complete or a substantial monopoly of any service and do so by virtue of permanent franchises every legal means should be taken to nullify such an intolerable appropriation of the resources of the community persistent and ruthless war should be declared upon these unnatural monopolies because as long as they exist they are an absolute bar to any thoroughly democratic and constructive system of municipal economy measures should be taken which under other circumstances would be both unfair and unwise for the deliberate purpose of bringing them to terms and getting them to exchange their permanent possession of these franchises for a limited tenancy permanent commissions should be placed over them with the right and duty of interfering officiously in their business taxation should be made to bear heavily upon them competitive services should be established wherever this could be done without any excessive loss they should be annoyed and worried in every legal way and all those burdens should be imposed upon them with the explicit understanding that they were measures of war in adopting such a policy a community would be fighting for an essential condition of future economic integrity and well-being and it need not be any more scrupulous about the means employed always under the law than would any animal in his endeavor to kill some blood-sucking parasite the corporation should plainly be told that the fight would be abandoned wherever it was ready to surrender its unlimited franchises for a limited but exclusive monopoly which in these cases should in all fairness run for a longer term than would be ordinarily permissible i have lingered over the case of corporations enjoying municipal franchises because they offer the only existing illustration of a specific economic situation a situation in which a monopolized service is based upon exclusive and permanent economic advantages precisely the same situation does not exist in any other part of the economic area but the idea is that under such a policy of properly regulated recognition such a situation may come to exist in respect to those corporations which should be subject to the jurisdiction of the central government and just in so far as it does come to exist the policy of the central government should resemble the one suggested for the municipal governments and already occasionally adopted by them that any corporations properly subject to the jurisdiction of the federal government 
will attain to the condition of being a natural monopoly may be disputed but according to the present outlook if such is not the case the only reason will be that the government by means of official and officious interference regulates them into inefficiency and consequent inability to hold their own against their smaller and less regulated competitors if these corporations are left in the enjoyment of the natural advantages which wisely or unwisely they have been allowed to appropriate some of them at any rate will gradually attain to the economic standing of natural monopolies the railroad system of the country is gradually approximating to such a condition the process of combination which has been characteristic of american railroad development from the start has been checked recently both by government action and by anti-railroad agitation but if the railroads were exempted from the provisions of the antitrust law and were permitted subject to official approval either to make agreements or to merge according as they were competing or non-competing lines there can be no doubt that the whole country would be gradually divided up among certain large and essentially non-competitive systems a measure of competition would always remain even if one corporation controlled the entire railway system because the varying and conflicting demands of different localities and businesses for changes in rates would act as a competitive force and in the probable system of a division of territory this competitive force would have still more influence but at the same time by far the larger part of the freight and passenger traffic of the country would under such a system be shared by arrangement among the several corporations the ultimate share of each of the big corporations would not be determined until the period of building new through routes had passed but this period is not likely to endure for more than another generation thereafter additional railroad construction will be almost exclusively a matter of branch extensions and connections or of duplicating tracks already in existence and when such a situation is reached the gross traffic will be just as much divided among the cooperative companies as if it were distributed among different lines by a central management certain lines would be managed more efficiently than others and might make more money just as certain departments of a big business might because of peculiarly able management earn an unusually large contribution to the total profits but such variations could not be of any essential importance from the point of view of the community as a whole the railroad system of the country would be a monopoly the monopoly like that of a municipal street railroad would depend upon the possession of exclusive advantages it would depend upon the ownership of terminals in large and small cities which could no longer be duplicated save at an excessive expense it would depend upon the possession of a right-of-way in relation to which the business arrangements of a particular territory had been adjusted it would have become essentially a special franchise even if it had not been granted as a special franchise by any competent legal authority and like every other similar franchise it would increase automatically in value with the growth of the community in population and business this automatic increase in value like that of a municipal franchise should be secured to the community which creates it and it can be secured only by some such means as those suggested in the case of municipal franchises the federal government must that is take possession of that share of railroad property represented by the terminals the permanent right-of-way the tracks and the stations it is property of this kind which enables the railroads to become a monopoly and which 
if left in private hands, would absolutely prevent the gradual construction of a national economic system. In the existing condition of economic development and of public opinion, the man who believes in the ultimate necessity of government ownership, of railroad roadbeds and terminals, must be content to wait and to watch. The most that he can do for the present is to use any opening, which the course of railroad development affords, for the assertion of his ideas. And if he is right, he will gradually be able to work out, in relation to the economic situation of the railroads, some practical method of realizing the ultimate purpose. Even if public opinion eventually decided that the appropriation of the railroads was necessary in the national economic interest, the end could in all probability be very slowly realized. In return, for instance, for the benefit of government credit, granted under properly regulated conditions, the railroads might submit to the operation of some gradual system of appropriation, which would operate only in the course of several generations, and the money for which would be obtained by the taxation of railroad earnings. It might, however, be possible to arrange a scheme of immediate purchase and the conversion of all railway securities, except those representing equipment and working capital, into one special class of government security. In that case, the whole railroad system of the country could be organized into a certain limited number of special systems, which could be leased for a definite term of years to private corporations. These independent systems would, in their mutual relations, stimulate that economic rivalry among localities which is the wholesome aspect of railroad competition. Each of these companies should, of course, be free to fix such rates as were considered necessary for the proper development and distribution of traffic within its own district. Any such specific suggestions cannot at the present time be other than fanciful, and they are offered, not because of their immediate or proximate practical value, but because of the indication they afford of the purposes which must be kept in mind in drawing up a radical plan of railroad reorganization in the ultimate national interest. All such plans of reorganization should carefully respect existing railroad property values, unless the management of those railroads obstinately and uncompromisingly opposed all concessions necessary to the realization of the national interest. In that event, the nation would be as much justified in fighting for its essential interests as would, under analogous circumstances, a municipality. Furthermore, any such reorganization should aim at keeping the benefits of the then-existing private organization, whatever they might be. It should remain true to the principle that so far as economic authority and power is delegated in the form of terminable leases to private corporations, such power should be complete within certain defined limits. If agents of the national economic interest cannot be trusted to fulfill their responsibilities without some system of detailed censure and supervision, they should be entirely dispensed with. It may be added that if the proposed or any kindred method of reorganization becomes politically and economically possible, it may be added that if the proposed or any kindred method of reorganization becomes politically and economically possible, the circumstances which account for its possibility will in all probability carry with them some practicable method of realizing the proposed object. Wherever the conditions, obtaining in the case of railroad and public service corporations, are duplicated in that of an industrial corporation, a genuinely national economic system would demand the adoption of similar measures. 
how far or how often these measures would be necessarily applied to industrial corporations could be learned only after a long period of experimentation and during this period the policy of recognition tempered by regulation under definite conditions and graduated taxation of net profits would have to be applied but when such a policy had been applied for a period sufficiently prolonged to test their value as national economic agents further action might become desirable in their case as in that of the railroads the industrial unlike the service corporations cannot however be considered as belonging to a class which must be all treated in the same way conditions would vary radically in different industries and the case of each industry should be considered in relation to its special conditions wherever the tendency in any particular industry continued to run in the direction of combination and wherever the increasingly centralized control of that industry was associated with a practical monopoly of some mineral land or water rights the government might be confronted by another instance of a natural monopoly which it would be impolitic and dangerous to leave in private hands in all such cases some system of public ownership and private operation should if possible be introduced on the other hand in case the tendency to combination was strengthened in an industry such for instance as that of the manufacture of tobacco which does not depend upon the actual ownership of any american natural resources the manner of dealing with it would be a matter of expediency which would vary in different cases in the case of a luxury like tobacco either a government monopoly might be created as has already been done so frequently abroad or the state might be satisfied with a sufficient share of the resulting profits no general rule can be laid down for such cases and they will not come up for serious consideration until the more fundamental question of the railroads has been agitated to the point of compelling some kind of a definite settlement this sketch of a constructive national policy in relation to corporations need not be carried any further its purpose has been to convert to the service of a national democratic economic system the industrial organization which has gradually been built up in this country and to make this conversion if possible without impairing the efficiency of the system and without injuring individuals in any unnecessary way the attempt will be criticized of course as absolutely destructive of american economic efficiency and as wickedly unjust to individuals and there will be from the point of view of the critics some truth in the criticism no such reorganization of our industrial methods could be effected without a prolonged period of agitation which would undoubtedly injure the prosperity and unsettle the standing of the victims of the agitation and no matter what the results of the agitation there must be individual loss and suffering but there is a distinction to be made between industrial efficiency and business prosperity americans have hitherto identified prosperity with a furious economic activity and an ever-increasing economic product regardless of genuine economy of production and any proper distribution of the fruits unquestionably the proposed reorganization of american industrial methods would for a while make many individual americans less prosperous but it does not follow that the efficiency of the national economic organization need be compromised because its fruits are differently distributed and are temporarily less abundant it is impossible to judge at present how far that efficiency depends upon the chance which americans have enjoyed of appropriating far more money than they have earned 
and far more than they can spend except either by squandering it or giving it away. But in any event, the dangerous lack of national economic balance involved by the existing distribution of wealth must be redressed. This object is so essential that its attainment is worth the inevitable attendant risks. In seeking to bring it about, no clear-sighted democratic economist would expect to have it both ways. Even a very gradual displacement of the existing method of distributing economic fruits will bring with it regrettable wounds and losses. But provided they are incurred for the benefit of the American people as an economic whole, they are worth the penalty. The national economic interest demands, on the one hand, the combination of abundant individual opportunity with efficient organization, and on the other, a wholesome distribution of the fruits. And these joint essentials will be more certainly attained under some such system as the one suggested than they are under the present system. The genuine economic interest of the individual demands a distribution of economic power and responsibility, which will enable men of exceptional ability an exceptional opportunity of exercising it. Industrial leaders, like political leaders, should be content with the opportunity of doing efficient work, and with a scale of reward which permits them to live a complete human life. At present the opportunity of doing efficient industrial work is, in the case of the millionaires, not in that of their equally or more efficient employees, accompanied by an excessive measure of reward, which is, in the moral interest of the individual, either meaningless or corrupting. The point at which these rewards cease to be earned is a difficult one to define, but there certainly can be no injustice in appropriating for the community those increases in value which are due merely to a general increase in population and business. And this increase in value should be taken over by the community, no matter whether it is divided among 100 or 100,000 stockholders in a corporation. The essential purpose is to secure for the whole community those elements in value which are made by the community. The semi-monopolistic organization of certain American industries is, little by little, enabling the government to separate from the total economic product a part at least of that fraction which is created by social rather than individual activity. And a democracy which failed to take advantage of the opportunity would be blind to its fundamental interest. To be sure, the opportunity cannot be turned to the utmost public benefit until industrial leaders, like political leaders, are willing to do efficient work partly from disinterested motives, but that statement is merely a translation into economic terms of the fundamental truth that democracy, as a political and social ideal, is founded essentially upon disinterested human action. A democracy can disregard or defy that truth at its peril. End of chapter 12, section 3